And my name is Natalie Payton. So how are you doing this week, Natalie? You know, we're just coming out of finals week. Um, not that I really had any, like, sit-down tests. I had some essays, but, I mean, I feel pretty solid about all of them. I'm excited for the next semester. You know, I have to say the exact same thing. I had mostly essays, and I gotta tell you, by October, I am so ready for new classes. Oh, yeah. October? Yeah, I got bored by October. Okay. I need a change of pace, you know? That's fair, actually. I get that. I mean, especially when you're just, you know, not taking as many Jewish studies classes. Yeah, I took only women's and gender studies, and I gotta tell you, it was so sad. Uh, shout out to Leah's women and gender studies advisors and professors. <laughs> Sorry, I just really like Jewish studies a lot. No, on my RA staff, I was talking to someone about my finals, and they were like, wow, I might just change majors, and I was like, do it. Do it. Just do it. Yeah. So, speaking of classes, Natalie and I went on a study abroad together. It was the time of our lives. Came out with so many stories. Many. I was telling our Holocaust class on the last day of class about the Polish street strawberries and me falling on that tram. Yeah, Natalie made a fool of herself and have so many Polish people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was a Jewish it was a Jewish studies program study abroad called Tracing the Holocaust and it was roughly about nineteen days with a group of twenty five people. I have never traveled with more than seven other people. It was a lot. It was an adjustment. But it was for everyone. a really fun time. And, you know, you might be looking at me saying that and think, Leah, you had a fun time in a Holocaust trip? What's wrong with you? No, but truly, I mean, there were moments that we set aside to mentally recoup and regenerate and just enjoy each other's company. Though I will say there was not enough retail therapy as there could have been. See, I think that's just because you didn't divide your time well. I personally love that yellow shirt that I got from the Mall of Berlin. Remember when I was trying to find the post the post office for like those entire three days? Yeah, and Natalie also got lost on her own in a foreign country. Yeah, guys, I, I saw the Seattle Sky Needle. In Berlin. <laughs> yeah, I took the train the wrong I took the bus the wrong way. I tried. I was trying to be discreet and not let Leah know because I knew she would mock me for the rest of my life. But somebody told her anyway. Shout out Gabby. Sorry, that sounded really snarky and I actually think it was legitimately funny. So I texted Gabby about it and she immediately, I didn't say Seattle. Those were Gabby's words. She texted in our group chat and she goes, guys, Natalie's in Seattle. <laughs> So you're probably wondering, why are we talking about this so in-depth? Well, on the study abroad, Dr. Chad Gibbs, his research assistant, slash one of my very good friends, Grace Schaefer. Our. Our very good friend, Grace Schaefer, and I, we had a side quest in Berlin. And that was to see the former apartment of Molly and Chaim, to see the apartment of Molly and Chaim Lonsman. And we found it. We did it. It was still there. Might not have looked like what it looked like in the 1930s, but it was there. And we got our photos taken. And then we went to a very touristy uh, beer garden, and I had myself a chicken schnitzel. Lovely. I'm glad that was a, a good part of that adventure. 
So you guys were doing this while I was on my own little side quest, you know, on the wrong side of the city. Um, why did you guys choose to go to that particular place? So I've mentioned in earlier podcasts that I work with both Dr. Chad Gibbs and Dr. Ashley Walters on small articles, um, research projects, that kind of thing. And so in the fall of 2022, Dr. Ashley Walters, who's the director of the Pearlstein Lebov Center for Southern Jewish Culture, she worked with Dr. Gibbs on this project for the Jewish Historical Society of South Carolina. Um, and that was on like a collection of letters at the College of Charleston's special collections in Allistone Library. So what was the reason you were looking at these letters? So the JHSSC puts out a like magazine every fall and spring. And so, this, so the spring 2023 article was titled Paper Bridges, Letters of Hope and Despair, 1933 to 1945. And it essentially goes into like censorship, how we uncover these letters that were sent during the Holocaust, during World War II, and we're finding them. Some people are finding them decades later, and they're tracking down these people and finding out what happened to them. And so I was essentially told, you've got two options. You can look at this one set of letters, the guy survived, he was from France. You can look at this other set of letters, they did not survive, they're Polish, living in Germany. And I said, I don't want to read French. So I picked the Lonsmans. And... I... So, what did these letters look like? What did they contain? What was the motive of looking at these for these artic- for this article? So, the collection is actually called um, The Bound Letters, and it's a set of, like, roughly 15 letters from March 15th, 1938 until roughly, like, 1941. There is an undated letter that we don't really know what it could be from, but it's the last letter what the date is April 21st, 1941. The collection goes between Molly Lonsman and her cousin Minnie Baum in South Carolina. And you would think, how do these people know each other? They didn't. They were cousins, but they didn't know that. So Molly, in March of 1938, reached out to Minnie via letter and was like, hey, my family has to get out of here. It's getting bad. She explained their familial connection, how they were cousins, and was like, could you please help us get out? My husband is well-skilled, he can get a job. I know that like you need to be able to prove to the US that you can support us. We are hardworking and we are confident that we will earn our bread there as well. Quote for quote, that's what she said. Granted, that was in German. And so she provided all of the information that Minnie would need in order to get them there. And we, our next letter is actually from Minnie to another cousin saying, hey, we need to help get these people out of here. The Lonsman family consisted of Molly, her husband Chaim, and their two daughters, Ida and Peppy. So Ida, at the time this letter was written, was about to turn 12, and Peppy had actually just turned one. And so Minnie's explaining this to her cousin Sarah, and is like, we can arrange through this organization, all of the cousins should pitch in, that kind of thing. And increasingly, as the letters go on, we're only, of course, seeing the letters that Molly is sending to Minnie. We're not seeing any of the letters that Molly or that Minnie is sending back to Molly. It increasingly gets harder to read them because 
you can sort of read the desperation as she's writing these and as it's getting harder and harder for Polish Jews in particular to live in Germany. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure even the desperation that had to go into sending that first letter to begin with. I mean, you don't know these people, they don't know you, and you're reaching out trying to extend any kind of thread for help. So knowing that it can be hard to piece together a story when you only have one side, what did that process look like of trying to compile that entire narrative? So some of the letters weren't actually translated, and so I would put them through like Google Translate, or I would call upon Dr. Chad Gibbs to have him translate the letters, and would, I had it all written down in a little Google Doc, um, color-coded and everything, because there are letters between Molly and Minnie, Minnie and Cousins, and then Minnie and various organizations, including, but not limited to, the Cuban Consulate. Interesting. Yeah, it would have been very expensive to have gotten them to the U.S. via Cuba. It would have been like $5,000 each in a Cuban bank. Wow. Yeah. And you just sort of, so I, so I translated all of these. I organized them by date. And actually on New Year's Eve, I can remember sitting, it was before my family went to like a get together with friends. I was sitting, I was looking at the, the Dropbox with all of the letters in them that were scanned. I remember thinking, I should probably get this last letter translated. I don't know why. I probably should, though. And it ended up being that that letter was the very last letter that was ever sent. And so I got that last letter translated, and it was essentially a letter in which Molly was saying to Minnie, why didn't you do more? That's heartbreaking. Knowing she knew at that point that her family was going to be murdered. And she was like, I reached out to you and you did not help me the way that I needed you to. It's one thing, I think, to learn about the Holocaust. It's an entirely another thing to read someone's current acts of desperation, to try to get their young children out. Absolutely. There's actually one letter in here where Molly is like, okay, I understand. You can't get all of us. Get Ida. Get my 13-year-old out of here. Part of why it was so hard reading these letters, but also so necessary. So you're asking me how I can piece together a story with only one side, and that was something that we really struggled with when writing this, because of course, like you can't figure out what people's intentions are, and we guessed. And sometimes that's what you have to do when you're faced with only one part of the story. But I think you did a pretty good job guessing. If you want to read this article, you can look it up. JHSSC 2023 spring article. I can attach it in the episode notes. Page 14 and 15. I think it's 14 and 15. So then, what is the significance of these letters and what can we learn from them? So, these letters are a first hand account of what it was like for someone to experience the Holocaust, for a Polish Jew living in Berlin to experience the Holocaust. And actually, in reading these letters, in one of the, in like the fourth or third or fourth letter that Molly sends to Minnie, we, um, so we all know about Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass, which happened on November 9th, 1938. What some of you might not know is that it was preceded by the Polonaktion, which happened in October 1938. It was essentially the involuntary deportation of a 
group of polish Jews. And part of why Krishanov happened is because a Jewish man in France, his parents were deported and he was like, you know what, I'm going to shoot a Nazi. And so he shot a Nazi, um, I think he was a consulate member. And essentially Kristallnacht was the sort of like retaliation against the Jews. Well, Molly's, Molly's husband, Chaim, was one of those involuntar involuntarily deported. And so Molly writes to her cousin, I am patiently waiting for an answer to my last letters, and in the meantime, my situation has changed badly, indescribably. She was left with her two, with her two daughters, and she said, A delay in the processing of the affidavit can become my abyss, since without my husband, I have no way of supporting my two children. Um, she continued to write, to open all the gates and save us as quickly as possible from our observing demise. Don't let the other cousins rest until you are sure that they have saved, that they have helped so that the affidavits are sufficient. Because with a good will, you can achieve anything and help desperate relatives out of the greatest need. As the rescuer of four people, read this letter to the other relatives so that these relatives also let their hearts soften and leave no stone unturned until you are able to send me a sufficient affidavit. Every hour is of unlimited importance. All possible ways must not be left unnoticed, which would only lead to one goal. Scream everywhere for help for us who need rescue on the quickest way. You can certainly imagine what situation has reached us by now. Help, 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 we scream. And I expect this help from you by telegram before it is too late, before we are completely destroyed. I don't know how to respond to that. Yeah. That's what, like, reading half of these letters were, and you're reading it with the, the very next letter being, well, it's going to cost this much money to get them all here. Yeah. It cost roughly, in 1938, November 1938, $117 to get them to the U.S., and that was just for, like, the ship, which the cheapest fare from Berlin to New York, to New York via Hamburg is $117.44. This entitles the passengers to third-class rail fare from Berlin to Hamburg and third-class steamship accommodations from Hamburg to New York. If the passengers are not U.S. citizens, there is also an $8 head tax. Um, and so the $117 total would have been $2,553 today. I don't know about you, I, that is such an insurmountable challenge, especially as the U.S. was still, like, sort of in the throes of the Great Depression. Yeah. And, like, I continue reading these letters, and Minnie, she was working it. Letters between the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society telling her, hey, we actually can't really help you all that much. Honestly, I can't even imagine the impact that all of this probably had on Minnie. Getting those letters and then that final one being like, you did not try hard enough. Yeah. And what makes it even harder is knowing that if she had gotten this letter to her six months earlier, the initial letter, maybe they would have gotten out. Maybe. But by 1938, if you were a Polish Jew who was not already out of Germany and not in Poland. Yeah, things had been put in place. Your chances of surviving were, of surviving and getting to the U.S. by the end of the war were not that high. 
So in talking about all this, what was the most meaningful part of working with these letters for you? I think being able to bring light to who Molly was. So while we were writing this, I, Grace Schaefer and Dr. Chad Gibbs all went to special collections so we could actually like look at these letters in our hands. And I did not know if there was like a, a picture of the Lonsman family because that wasn't included in the scan documents. And I pull out that little notebook or the little folder with all the letters. And the very first thing I see is a picture of Molly and her husband and their children. And I remember thinking like, this is insane. I got to read their letters. I got to know some of the hardest experiences that they ex went through before I even knew what they looked like. And there was one photo. So the likelihood of me ever actually seeing a photo of them was very slim. And I think the most meaningful part of it though is the fact that for the first time in decades probably, someone was thinking of the Lonsmans. And that was like difficult to think about, but also I was glad to be able to say like, I remember the Lonsmans. I know who they are. Yeah, I mean, we don't really think about how many of these people, how many of these individual stories are we losing just from a lack of attention to them? Dr. Gibbs, this past semester, started off his Holocaust class and ended it with the same quote. And it was, I should like someone to remember that there once lived a person named David Berger. And it was the last words written in a letter sent in 1941 80 years and now 80 years after it's you know symbolic of this 19 year old boy who was murdered during the holocaust while the lawnsmans you know maybe didn't specifically write down remember who we are that's i think an innate part of us there is an innate want to be remembered and to be known and no one past you're gone and no one should have to ever ask to be remembered yeah. Especially in this context of relentless prosecution and then genocide. Many of the descendants and people who study the Holocaust constantly um, give praise to Yad Vashem and other organizations dedicated to Holocaust remembrance for keeping these stories in people's minds. You especially have to recognize that this happened to individuals, this happened to people. It wasn't just one overarching group. They were individual people. And it's especially important to understand that when it comes to learning about stories of survival, there's so there's this thing called survivorship bias, um, where it's like you only look at the stories of those who come back. And I don't think, well, obviously, I don't think that we focus enough on those who didn't survive and those who were murdered. But it's also the fact that there just simply isn't enough out there to be able to remember some of these people. Yeah, like, I mean... Look at Yad Vashem, there are pages that are unfilled because we don't know their names. That all goes into even the work that we were talking about with Rahel Oyerbach and her dedication to telling the stories of people who couldn't. So what is the plan for these letters in the future? Yeah, so if you read the JHSSC article, you'll see that there's another one right above mine about censorship and about getting letters, Yiddish letters, from Poland to the U.S. 
And so Dr. Chuck Gibbs really, really, really wants to get both of these sets of letters, um, I guess like fully translated, organized, all of that, so that he can add it as part of, I'm not sure if it's gonna be like class content or if it'll have like an entire class dedicated to it, but he wants to organize them so that they can be used in the classroom. That's the big plan that he's got for them. My plan doesn't necessarily have to do with the letters, more so with the Lonsmans. So as president of here, when we were first sort of reinvigorating it and waking it up, my big question was, well, what are we gonna do? What do we do? And there's this thing called Stolpersteine, which is German for stumbling stone. It's essentially a four by four block that is placed in front of the last home that they consensually lived in before the Holocaust started. And so my goal was to get Schulpersteine placed for the four lawnsmen so that they could be reunited again in front of their home in the neighborhood of Mitte in Berlin. And that's part of why Dr. Gibbs, Grace, and I took a little side trip to their apartment was so we could figure out, oh, well, where are we going to put it? And we actually went on a bit of a further walk and we figured out who their neighbors were. And it was both rewarding and sobering to see their neighbors' names written down and also saying, oh, their neighbors are also all murdered. In the end, Molly and Chaim most likely were murdered at Auschwitz in 1942. We did not find records of what happened to their daughters. It's highly unlikely that they survived. And part of that, like, the horror in this whole story is, like, Ida was probably like 15, give or take, and Peppy was like five. It was like, they had their entire lives ahead of them. This is definitely one of our Sutter episodes. I'm sorry. It is. And even just the idea that we don't know what happened to their two very young daughters, but we know that their neighbors were murdered, just brings to mind how many people do we not know about? How many people had their entire circle decimated and there was no one to tell us their names or tell us their stories? Would we know what we know without these letters? Yeah, we probably wouldn't. Um, so it's important to note that when you're placing a Schulpersteine, you have the options of putting down their fate as being murdered and where? Fled. Fled into death or fate unknown. And I think that reading the fate unknown ones is harder because it is like, oh, your existence was scraped from the world. They didn't even have the the care to say, oh, you're so-and-so. They didn't care enough to record it. Yeah, so as difficult as this project was, I was able to tell um, Max and Ann Hellman, who are descendants of Minnie Baum, what happened and what Minnie's letter collection was able to tell us. And with their help, we are working on installing the Stolpersteine in Berlin. And so I'm incredibly grateful to them for providing their permission as the last descendants or the most recent descendants. So in talking about special collections, I know we're incredibly privileged to have such a great archival resource here at our own college. How do you think that benefits every student, honestly. Well, so here at CFC, if you have an ID, essentially you can go in and you can look at these, this material. And it's so easy to be able to use this in like papers and it's 
so often a firsthand account of what happened. Not necessarily of like the Holocaust, but of so much more. I know that there's oral histories housed at the archive, ranging from the hospital strikes in 1969 to the experiences of gay men in Charleston. There's such a wide range of experiences documented there. There's old books, there's um, kiddish cups and cookbooks. There's so much there that is just sitting, waiting for you to explore. I had my own experience exploring our amazing special collections when I was working at Synagogue Emanuel and I had been tasked with trying to dig up some of this history that had just been forgotten by the congregation and was no longer held inside of our building. Um, I went to Special Collections. They were very nice. They helped me find everything I needed. I was able to find photos of the first bat mitzvah to take place in that synagogue, of the sisterhood and just congregants uh, breaking ground on what is the current day synagogue. I was able to find all these amazing events that I otherwise would not have had access to. So essentially we're saying if you know that you have old documents and you want to be able to preserve them and you want people to be able to benefit from them, look into donating them to your local college or university and see if they have a special collections that you can give them to. You can even endow them in your will so when you die your descendants can handle giving it to the college. Um, but yeah, the, there's so much good and so much that can be unearthed from looking at stuff that you might consider to be miscellaneous. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you aren't sure if what you have fits, you can always ask. There's no harm. I know that Lauren Bickle even went on that study abroad with us. She's an employee at the CFC Special Collections, and she was of immense help just getting those stories into our hands. There truly is no harm in just asking if they would be interested in your material. Yeah. And I think we often don't think about what can actually be considered history. Things that we live through, maybe we're not considering as particularly important. But, I mean, even documents from as little of, as a year ago can be historically important. And they can be beneficial for mundane, future resources. The mundane is important because it's someone's lived experience. So on that note, Natalie, thank you for listening to me. Thank you. I think that's a really beautiful phrase to end with. The mundane is important because it is someone's lived experience. And I'm really glad that you were able to conduct this research and read these letters and bring attention to these names that may not otherwise have it, and especially bring closure to this family. You did a great job, and I'm really glad that you were the one to do it. Thank you. You make my heart happy, Natalie. Aww. Listeners, if you want to read the article that I wrote, I will put it in the episode description. And again, a big thank you to Ellis Librand, as always, for composing our beautiful music.